trying to lose weight with IBS but really struggling because whatever you eat just seems to set off your digestive symptoms like bloating, rushing to the loo and feeling pretty terrible. There are lots of reasons why it's harder to lose weight with IBS and in this episode I'm going to talk through some of the reasons that are additional to IBS that might also be making it much harder including why diet foods aren't always the best if you've got a sensitive digestion, what about meal timing and does that make a difference to weight loss and then talk through some other complications like your hunger hormones that can be different in people who've got IBS. So this episode is part two, go back and listen to part one if you want my little introduction first, but let's go. Hello, welcome to episode 39 of the Inside Knowledge for People with IBS. I'm Anna Mapson. As I said at the beginning of the last episode, weight loss topics are not suitable for everybody, so you may find you want to skip this week if you are not into weight loss and IBS. It's not for everybody, but I do get a lot of people who do want to lose weight and are finding it increasingly hard because of the diet restrictions that come with managing your IBS. So this week I'm going to be talking a little bit more in a bit of a deep dive into hormones, other situations that might make it harder. So yes, last week we talked about calorie deficit is really important. That is still true, but there are other complications that may make it a little bit more tricky. I'm going to talk through a couple of things about going on a diet and what that entails and mentally and literally physically with your gut, what kind of changes happen when you are going on a diet. I'll talk through a little bit about fasting through the night or timing of your last meal and whether that has any impact on weight loss. And then a couple of tips at the end of things you can do to focus on, including some really practical, simple, free things that don't involve too much extra work. So... That's what we're going to cover today. When I'm thinking about the things that make it harder for my clients to lose weight, one of the things we have to take into account is genetics. So for example, does a larger body size run in your family? Is it to do with the way you've been brought up and what food you've eating and your food and eating patterns? Of course, that does have an effect. But now we're finding out a little bit more about DNA profiles and our genetic code. We are able to learn a little bit more about certain SNPs, they're called single nucleotide polymorphisms. That's basically like just a little mutation on a gene that can leave you with a predisposition to gaining weight. Now, there are thousands of these different genetic makeups and different points. The problem with doing genetic testing where you can research what your actual genes are is that you can have a gene for a health condition or for a predisposition to something like being in a larger body and being more likely to store a lot of fat it doesn't mean that those genes are switched on so it doesn't mean that they're going to be enacted in your body and this is where it's really challenging just knowing your genetic makeup doesn't necessarily mean what will be effective for you. Sorts of pathways that might be affected would include like your appetite. Sometimes people have upregulated appetite or hunger hormones just by their genetics. Sometimes people have variations in the way that their insulin responds. Could be to do with your blood pressure. These kind of things sometimes do run in the family and they can impact on your body size over time. I've seen some estimates that the heritability, so that's like the likelihood that you will inherit 
these genes from your parents is somewhere between 40 and 70%. So it's quite likely that a lot of this stuff does run in the family, but it doesn't lock you into that predestined body size. So there are still things that you can do to reduce down your body weight if that's what you are trying to do. Other things that may make it a lot harder when you're focusing on weight loss are female sex hormones and particularly people who have polycystic ovarian syndrome, there are four subtypes of PCOS and within that there are some subtypes that find it a lot harder to lose weight and it's down to the androgen sex hormones that's like the testosterone the male sex hormone that can be upregulated so particularly people who have problems with a lot of dark body hair overgrowth and sort of male pattern hair loss may find it harder to lose weight and so getting on top of the PCOS is one of the situations that can help again some of that can be done through diet but it just makes it, it's like another layer and there is also an overlap between people who have PCOS and people who have IBS as well. Other things that make it much harder to lose weight when you've got IBS include your socioeconomic status. So that means basically how wealthy you are, how much free time you have and where you live. That may very well dictate what food you have access to, how easy it is for you to get this fresh food that everyone's saying is good for you. Actually, you might be working two different jobs, really struggling to make ends meet. And so your time for engaging in healthy dietary practice might be reduced. Plus your your headspace to engage in that as well is massively under pressure. So there are lots of things that are more societal that we just don't even mention a lot of the time when we're talking about how hard it is to lose weight because there isn't really an easy answer and it's not something that you can fix. But it is good to understand because it puts you in a more compassionate mindset about yourself. I wanted to talk a bit as well about the mindset of going on a diet and how this actually influences your ability to lose weight. So when you typically go on a diet and you're like, right, I'm not having any chocolate, no more crisps, no more meals out no more alcohol, no more sugar, you know, everything gets cut out, gets very simplified, you're like healthy rice and vegetables and lean chicken. That becomes rather boring after a little while and there are many reasons why a kind of on a diet mindset doesn't really work in the long term. And it's not just mindset, if you don't eat enough food, our hunger hormone ghrelin is stimulated when the body doesn't have food in your stomach, so ghrelin comes in peaks and troughs and it will get stronger and stronger and it's that sort of rumbly tummy feeling. Now that can be measured and there was a brilliant study in 2011 taken two groups of people, it was quite a small study but two groups of people were given two different milkshakes. One of them was given a 620 calorie indulgent shake so the packaging was really luxurious and they were told it was going to be really filling and just a a treat basically and then another group of people were given a 140 calorie milkshake and told it was kind of dieting, it was like for fat loss and it was to help them lose weight. Now the interesting thing was that both of these milkshakes were exactly the same. It's just the communication about it and the packaging was the thing that was different. Now, what 
the brilliant thing about this study is it me it measured the ghrelin, that's that hunger hormone. So it was measuring how much ghrelin was produced after drinking this milkshake. They measured it at the baseline, they measured it just before they had the shake and then they measured it after. And also during this time they were kind of asked to talk about it, to like rate the milkshake. And what was so interesting is that you saw a huge decline in ghrelin after consuming the indulgent shake, that one that they thought was going to be filling. Whereas the people who thought they were having um, like a healthy, sensible milkshake did not have such a decline in ghrelin. So they still felt a bit hungry. And part of it is our mindset around diet foods. So when you think that you're depriving yourself, it's more than likely you are still going to feel very unsatisfied, even if you're getting the same amount of calories. That's what's so interesting to me. It's a lot about our perception of the food. Do we feel like this is going to be a really warm, healthy, filling meal that is nourishing us? Or do we feel like it's a really thin, basic, gruelly kind of milkshake? So something for you to think about definitely is thinking about which foods are actually going to be help you to feel good about eating. And a lot of that comes down to taste. So is it fat free? So this is the other thing I wanted to move on to is dieting products. You can get low calorie versions of lots of foods out there now, low fat versions or diet versions. Now this is going to reduce down your overall energy intake and these less energy dense foods or sometimes they're zero calories don't taste the equivalent of the full fat or the full sugar versions. So there are additional things added to make the food more palatable. These aren't always good for people who've got IBS. So when you switch to low calorie foods, or diet products, sometimes you can find an increase in your digestive symptoms. That's not to say for everybody they're not suitable, just for if you've got IBS and you're trying to eat healthy and trying to go on a low calorie diet, sometimes using foods that are low calorie aren't always good for your IBS. So for example, some foods are sweetened with xylitol, which is a high FODMAP sweetener, or inulin, which again is a high FODMAP sweetener. And this can cause a lot of bloating and gas and just makes it really tricky if you don't know what is causing your symptoms. The other thing is some of the thickeners for things like yogurts and low-fat dairy products are emulsifiers. And sometimes those can be a little bit challenging on your digestive system when you've got a really sensitive digestion like in IBS. So those two things hand in hand. Firstly, your expectation that this food is not going to be as nice and as filling and as comforting as the full fat version and then secondly the fact that you might get symptoms from it often mean that these products aren't the best for helping you to lose weight when you've got IBS. The other thing about going on a very restrictive diet, so I've seen people um, promoting one meal a day diet which is sometimes called OMAD, I mean, I think it is a little bit mad <laughs> if I like to say, um, OMAD is basically one meal a day there is literally no way you are going to meet all your nutritional targets in one meal a day. And if you have IBS, trying to cram all your fibre targets, your protein targets into one meal is going to leave you very bloated, very upset tummy or really hungry. I mean, if you're not eating enough meals, then you're going to really struggle to feel like you're having a normal diet. And that is where people go on the dieting bandwagon and then flip off and just think, I cannot do this. And you just go back to eating normally because 
eating one meal a day means basically you're cutting out two meals a day. That's quite significant. So let's come on to now think about some of the things that you can do, you can manipulate in your own diet to help if you do want to lose weight. So bear in mind, as I mentioned in the last episode, some of the key things would just be to cut out, you know, your biscuits, chocolate, like a lot of the typical high energy density foods that you know aren't great for you, but you just eat because you love them. Now try and cut down on those. Those are gonna reduce your calorie intake. Then also going through the low FODMAP diet process in order to understand your particular triggers. Now the low FODMAP diet is not meant for you to lose weight. It is just a diet for you to get a better handle on your digestion. And I also mentioned the third thing is to increase your daily movement. So that non-exercise movement that's just literally getting up from your desk, moving around, taking the stairs a bit more than the lift, just generally increasing your day-to-day movement. So all of those things, yes, they still stand, but let's get a bit more specific within the diet. Does the timing of your food influence whether you're going to put weight on or not? Well, Generally, we know that it's, it is mostly about your overall calorie intake. Meal frequency isn't as important for weight loss as some people would have you believe. Eating after nine is not necessarily going to make you put on weight. Your overall energy balance is what's important. But there are some associations with late eating and weight loss. So eating a later dinner, and they're talking like at nine, ten o'clock at night, has been shown to decrease your glucose tolerance and keep your blood glucose at a higher level. And this is because we are more able to process glucose in the morning. So the later that you eat, your tolerance, your insulin resistance gets decreased. So this could potentially lead to changes in weight if you're repeatedly eating dinner right before you go to bed at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So late meals also might increase your cortisol levels over um, the 24 hours, which can reduce your fatty acid breakdown. So there is a potential mechanism, but your overall balance of energy throughout the day is still really, really important. It's not only about eating late. But another thing to bear in mind is that eating late at night has also been shown to double the likelihood of being hungry the next day, which then means you might eat more the following day, so you're less likely to feel full, more likely to feel hungry, no matter what you're eating. And this has been shown in studies. If you've listened to my podcast before, I do really suggest eating three good meals a day. And this is in order to spread out the key nutrients that you need that are important for IBS and well, for everybody. But if you're cramming them all into a very short period of time, it's really difficult to hit your key nutrition targets. But I do suggest people have a little bit of a break overnight from eating, ideally about 12 hours. Now, this is not what we would call intermittent fasting fasting. It's basically just not eating after dinner. Now this helps your digestion because it allows you to digest your food before you go and lie down for eight hours. And also if you think about the foods you're eating at night, I mean it's not normally like broccoli and fish or things that you're snacking on is it it's going to be snacking on things that are palatable we want a little reward at the end of the day and these foods just tend to be higher in energy and often they're snack foods that have been you know produced to have a perfect mix of fats and sugars and salts and they just keep you wanting more because they're produced in that way so thinking about what you're eating during the day will help you to be less hungry at night. 
I've said before lots of times, I don't want you to go to bed hungry. I'm not saying that if you have a real need for food before you go to bed that you shouldn't eat. Obviously do eat if you're hungry. But if you're repeatedly hungry after dinner, I suggest that you're probably not eating enough in the day. So you need to eat a bigger lunch, a bigger dinner, and just try and really bulk up on the protein fiber. I'm gonna go through a little bit more about each of those now. So protein is one of the key elements that are brilliant for IBS in that they don't have any starches that are fermentable. So they tend to cause less symptoms. But also if you're eating lean protein, such as chicken, fish, turkey, eggs, and then vegetarian things like tofu as well. These are really good at helping you get full and feel like you've got enough energy to keep going without getting too many of the IBS type symptoms that you're trying to avoid. So do make sure you are eating enough protein throughout the day and that hopefully will reduce the need to want to snack later in the day. But as I said, if you're hungry, you've got to eat. But try to choose things that are including protein that are going to give you a little bit of the goodness that you're hungry for rather than just snack food that like your brain is hungry for, if that makes sense. So I mentioned a little bit about low fat foods and trying to cut down on fats to lose weight. Now we still need fats in our diet. I did a whole episode on dietary fats, episode 23, and that breaks down a lot about the different fats and how you can digest them and some of the difficulties you might have. So we don't want to have loads and loads of fatty food when you've got IBS because it can really trigger symptoms. However, you do need to have some level of fats in your diet and think about the Mediterranean diet. It's got lots of plant-based fats like nuts, seeds, olive oil, avocados. I know some of those are higher FODMAP foods and might give you problems, but generally they are fats that we want to include in our diet. Now, the final two pieces of advice around weight loss with IBS. The first one is slowing down to eat. Slowing down over your meal times has a really big impact on your ability to digest your food because your teeth are doing some of the digestion work for you. If you're not eating properly and you're just swallowing down big lumps of food, and this happens if you are eating in a rush, if you're eating distracted, either watching telly or working at your desk, this can have negative consequences on digestion. So you want to slow down to eat and chew your food really well. There is also research that shows that eating slowly can help improve weight loss. There is a research study that showed some lean men and some men with obesity who both chewed their food 30 times and they ate, I think it was like 11 or 12% less food and they consumed less energy than people who chewed less than 30 times. So literally just by slowing down, you're going to eat less or you're potentially going to eat less. Part of the way that that works is that your brain has two ways to know that you are full. One is the stretch receptors in your stomach are full as the food expands in your stomach. The second is like a chemical digestion process that sends messages back to the brain to say, hey, I've got fats, I've got proteins. I'm happy you can stop eating. That can typically take up to 20 minutes. So if you eat your food really, really fast, sometimes you may get stretch receptor like messages. You can feel that there's food in your stomach, but you want to carry on eating because your brain hasn't actually registered that there is some of this food being digested yet. So slowing down 
just gives your body time to get that process sorted. The other thing is just making sure that you are well hydrated. Now, I am not someone who says, if you're feeling hungry, just go and have a glass of water because that's not really going to help your hunger. However, you can sometimes confuse feelings of hunger with being thirsty. So in order to get away from that, so don't drink when you're actually hungry but at the same time don't let yourself become really really dehydrated and make sure that you are just you know looking after your body in lots of ways not just focusing on what you're cutting out also thinking about what you're putting in you need to put in the liquid you need to put in enough of the antioxidants nutrients protein that are going to help your body as you try to change your body shape bearing all of those things in mind if you feel like you need some help with any of this then you can work with me over three months and I have a lot of people who want to deal with weight loss alongside dealing with gut health and digestion come and join my gut research set if you are interested in doing that working one-to-one with me or I also have a group gut reset where we do group coaching sessions and you still get time with me one-to-one but also group sessions. Okay that's it for this week. I'd love to hear from you with your questions. If you've got a topic you want me to pick apart in the inside knowledge then let me know but otherwise yes I will leave it there for this week and thank you for listening. Bye.